Okay, we're up to chapter 18 of Brown of Lamphrey's Pious and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer of Prayer. Chapter 18 is about the marks of praying aright in Christ's name. Remember our text that he is using throughout the book and to which he continues to have reference, John 14, 13, and 14. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <clears throat> so, uh, we want to look in this chapter, uh, he wants to have us consider whether or not we're actually asking in the name of Christ. Uh, whether or not we're, we're doing uh, any of that that he's been talking about in the last couple of chapters. And so this is sort of, um, uh, in a sense, an inventory <clears throat> from which he wants you to uh, make those determinations. Because really only you uh, can assess yourself and know whether or not you are making right use of the name of Christ in prayer or not, right? You, um, you If you're just sort of throwing it in as a, a coda or an appendix, um, then the fact is that you, you've missed his entire point. Right? You, you need to have uh, a sense of, of who Christ is. And <clears throat> that entails having uh, really a, a pretty good sense of who you are. And that, that idea in Brown is not something uh, new or unusual or peculiar to Brown. Uh, if you've read any of Calvin's Institutes in, in the first uh, chapter or two, Calvin begins with the assertion that knowledge of God and knowledge of oneself are in some sense flip sides of the same coin. Right? So the better you know God, the better you're going to know yourself, the better you know yourself, the better you're going to know God. Um, when you know the true God, because the true God really meets and, and complements all of those uh, defects that you're going to find in yourself. Right? Everything that Christ has done, <clears throat> everything he's undertaken to do uh, on behalf of sinners of mankind, he's done with a very sober and accurate assessment of the condition of mankind. Right? So he's undertaken for people who are not only unable but unwilling to keep the law of God, unable and unwilling to render an acceptable service to God, to give glory to God as they're required. Right? We're just not willing. By nature, we don't, and this is a very odd thing about sin. Sin puts you in a place where you are in extreme need, <clears throat> your dependence upon God has um, has grown exponentially from simply a state of creation. All right, but in a state of sin, you are now absolutely averse to the idea that you even have a problem. Right? So there's a delusional element to sin. And then people wonder, you know, why, <clears throat> I mean, and, and, and this is not just in the world, in the churches, there's no difference right now uh, in the church and, and the world, how many people are on antidepressants, right? Why, why is it that People are, you know, they gravitate toward drugs and toward alcohol and excess and, and, and all these other things. Why is it 
All right. The, and the, the reason is they are self-medicating. But if you medicate without an eye to the real root cause, you're just covering symptoms. You're not actually doing anything that will alleviate those symptoms. So what Brown is doing here, with, in, in this is with respect to prayer, <clears throat> he's giving us a list. He's going to give us a list and, and have you check it off so that you have a sense, you have a way of knowing whether or not you are making proper use of Christ. And, and if you're not... The inference and the admonition that is not only implied but sometimes uh, is explicit in what Brown says is that you would go to God with that, that you would confess. Uh, you know, the, the first thing about dealing with God is you need to be honest about yourself. You know, the, the, the weird thing, again, about people in their depravity is they are all too prone to, to make God after their own image. And so they, they think that, um, they try to convince themselves that all of this is normal, this is the way it should be, uh, whereas I think any rational person who wasn't deluded, would look around and conclude something has gone wrong. Something's gone radically wrong. Uh, when we see not only what happens in society, among the nations, but we see what happens just within ourselves. And we reflect upon how we interact with other people and with ourselves, right? How, how we think when we're alone. There's something radically wrong with this picture. And, you know, you're not even approaching the true God if you can't make that assessment. You can't say, I realize there's something wrong. You know, I, I see that there, there is this, not only weakness, but this averseness. I, like, I, there are times when I know what is right. This is something Augustine points out in his confession, right? When he says, I'm walking by, very famous story, walking by a man's yard, uh, me and a friend, and we see he has a pear tree. We're not hungry, right? But we climb the fence and we steal some of his pears just to do it. And he said at that, you know, looking back on that, he said, that should have been a clue right? Why did I do that? I didn't do it because I was hungry. I didn't have any need that, you know, was um, physical. In, in, instead of giving expression to some sort of spiritual malady, right? The, the fact that I would reach into this guy's property and take his stuff, and I don't even need it, you know, but I steal it so I can throw it away. There's something twisted about that right there's something not right and augustine says if you if you would focus on that in yourself because we all do that in some way or other we've all we all do it we've all done it ask yourself why right so uh, these are things to keep in mind <clears throat> because brown has already said if you're going to make right use of Christ, you have to have a proper assessment of yourself as a sinner. You have to know that you have sinned before God. All right, so there are three points. Uh, we're beginning at question 352. Uh, the three points of using Christ's name uh, that will be made use of in this chapter. And so he wants us to consider uh, A, or first, uh, the use of Christ's name before prayer. <coughs> B, or second, <coughs> the use of Christ's name in prayer. <coughs> and if you couldn't guess, 
uh, see your third is use of Christ's name after prayer. He's already uh, talked about some of this uh, in, in in detail. Right? The the fact is that if we if we rightly uh, took our our spiritual pulse, we would see that we are sinners who stand in need uh, of of something more than we could possibly bring to the table. We need grace. And that grace is available only in and through Christ. God has not attached a promise of grace and mercy any, anywhere else to anything else. <clears throat> and so that again... Uh, is an indication of the uniqueness of Christ, right? The, the promise of God to sinners of mankind meet us in him. And so how we, how we do that inventory before prayer, how our minds conceive of prayer when we're in prayer, and how we are um, referring all of that to God after prayer. All of that is um, is dependent upon having a right apprehension of who Christ is and what He's done, and why He's done it. And when and again, once you get into that why, you have to take into account your own estate. So, um, the first thing here, before prayer, 353, uh, what should be our use of the name of Christ? He says we have to make a right use considering his name, offices, and work. Which he says is, is really this: we have to um, we have to think about the fact that he is a mediator, he is an intercessor, and he's an advocate. <clears throat> he's standing in the gap between God and us. So that that name Jesus uh, reminds us of the historical reality that the eternal Son of God has become incarnate and walked upon the earth. Right? the The title Christ uh, reminds us that He took upon Himself our nature in order to be a mediator. We can't take the divine nature into ourselves. But in Christ, God has taken the human nature and and assumed a a hypostatic union. It's a personal union. It's not the divine nature and the human nature are are joined together. So there would be any mixing or, or confusion. But the divine person, who is the eternal Son of God, takes into union with himself our nature. Theologically, it's called a hypostatic union. It is a personal union, not a natural union. So that the union between God and man is not... It's not natural. There's nothing that would in any way indicate that there's any truth to, say, panentheism or, or pantheism, the idea that everything is God. We're not God. 
uh, all these things around us are not God. Um, God is in, although there's an eminency whereby we can say that God is in everything because he's everywhere. All right. Everything is not God by virtue of that, because there's a natural union between the creator and the creation. But in Christ, there is a personal union of the divine nature with the human nature. There's a personal bridge. And that bridge is the man, Christ Jesus. So that mediatorial <clears throat> office <clears throat> needs to be in our consideration at all times. Right? There's only one way. There's one bridge. There, there are not a lot of bridges here. And that bridge had to span not only the creation, right? That gap between creator and creation. But it, it also then entering into the creation has to make that atonement so that there is a bridge between a righteous God <clears throat> and an unrighteous creation, an unrighteous creature. Having done that, then he has, by virtue of his office of high priest, he is exercising himself as a high priest on behalf of his people. He makes intercession continually. Why is that necessary? Well, it's not only necessary because we're sinners, but the necessity of it is... Um, ever-present when we're praying. So that John in the Revelation says that when the prayers of the saints are offered up, they're offered up with the incense or the the um, uh, that sweet savor that God perceives in the atonement of Christ. So Christ interceding and, and us praying in his name and the atonement of Christ all tell us that our prayers are made efficacious before God, not because of anything in us or from us or or anything that we could uh, do or think, but they're wholly dependent in their efficacy on Christ and what he's done. And he has done not only... Uh, has he made that definitive atonement, but he is ever active, <clears throat> carrying all of the just, righteous uh, petitions of the people of God, those things which are lawful, those things which are framed according to the word of God. Uh, he's carrying them to God and seeking answer not on his own behalf, but on our behalf. Right? So that mediation continues uh, throughout history. <clears throat> In addition, he points out that, that he is an advocate. <clears throat> and being an advocate, um, he's doing exactly the opposite of, of what we're told Satan is doing with respect to the people of God. Satan is continually agitating. Right? Satan is continually accusing. Uh, Satan is continually trying to dissuade people, uh, introduce doubts and, and fears, and dissuade people from the faith. Right? Christ, on the other hand, uh, lives continually as an advocate, uh, basically putting himself forward in our in our place in our stead <clears throat> and uh, presenting to God the perfection of what he has done in our place right so he is like uh, he's the best cosmic lawyer that money can't buy right he can't be bought. Uh, it's just a matter of faith. All right. So, 
faith, 354, faith of Christ's mediation intercession should embolden us to come forward in prayer, notwithstanding what. And, and so <clears throat> he gives us um, four things. And if you've uh, tried to pray, you've found uh, prayer difficult, you've uh, been discouraged and so on, I think you'll find here uh, probably uh, a category or two, that at, at least, that sounds familiar. But he's saying, despite these things that we're going to list, uh, if we have faith in Christ's mediation and intercession, we should be emboldened to pray, notwithstanding. So notwithstanding what? Well, notwithstanding, first of all, A, 354A, <clears throat> notwithstanding the old guilt that stands in the way, right, the convictions of former transgressions. And so here he brings up Psalm 25, 7. Remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions, According to thy mercy, remember thou me for thy goodness sake. The psalmist's plea here that God would um, hear him is focused on the mediation of Christ, right? Christ is the goodness of God incarnate. He wants to be heard for his sake. He doesn't want uh, his old sins dredged up. Right? But there, the, what, what we're being told here and what we should understand from this is that our sins, while they should be ever before us, um, that we confess them and so on. They shouldn't be paralyzing us from praying. And they won't unless you are, are actually relying upon something in and of yourself. <clears throat> God says he's going to cast your sins as far away from his remembrance as the east is from the west. But he doesn't give you, uh, he doesn't give you the like privilege yet. Right? You, the psalmist is continually remembering and, and thinking upon his sins, even going back to his youth. Uh, and, and nevertheless, he's not going to allow those things to determine uh, the boldness of his prayer to God. His dependence is on Christ. It's on something out, some someone outside of Himself, and and uh, so proper apprehension of our sinfulness is to continually dissuade us from trusting in ourselves or thinking we have any merit or anything valuable to bring to God, while at the same time driving us to see that God of His own free goodness has been merciful to us in Christ. <clears throat> so, he says, don't, <clears throat> don't allow past sin <clears throat> to uh, dampen your, um, your fervor in prayer. But then in the second point, 354b, Is um, <clears throat> the faith of Christ's mediation intercession should embolden, should embolden us to come forward in prayer, notwithstanding the present guilt which may stare us in the face. <clears throat> <clears throat> and so he points to Jeremiah fourteen seven. O Lord. Though our iniquities testify against us, do thou for thy name's sake. Again, 
not something um, that is unknown to the, um, the sojourning of the people of God. But even your present sin should not dampen your uh, your willingness and, and even your fervor in praying to God. Right? It's only going to dampen your fervor if your focus is on that present sin and you intend it to remain, you know, unconfessed, un uh, you, you, you're going to remain impenitent. But if you're, if you're not, then you're looking to cast your confidence outside of yourself. And that's exactly what we find there in Jeremiah. In fact, he says, if Satan cannot prevail to keep us from this duty by presenting former transgressions, uh, he's going to remind us of present unrepented of sins and an evil frame. But Brown says, look, if you make a right use of the name of Christ, remember this is before prayer, then you're not going to get caught up in that game. You know, there's nothing you've done in secret that Satan doesn't know. And and so, you know, to have it uh, sort of screaming in your ear when you're getting ready to pray uh, should come as no surprise. But the very fact that that comes to your remembrance, that it uh, would suggest itself often vividly, <clears throat> that fact alone should tell you that there's something else going on. It, sh it should convince you that you're in a spiritual warfare. Right? And, and you're not going to win that on your own. So it shouldn't, it should not dampen your fervor, it should embolden you. Right? It should give you confidence to come, to repent, and then to pray. All right, third, 354C. The faith of Christ's mediation and intercession should embolden us to come forward in prayer, notwithstanding uh, our present indisposition or lack of due preparation or a suitable frame of heart, which is requisite to draw near to God. <clears throat> all of that uh, might be incentive for you to, to hold back. But if you're making right use of the name of Christ, you're not, again, you're not going to hold back. Why? Because your, your um, being heard in prayer <clears throat> the uh, efficacy of your prayer, the acceptance of your prayer, all of this doesn't actually depend upon you. And, and remember that very often the case is, uh, if you sit back and wait until you feel like praying, you will never feel like praying. On the other hand, if you begin to pray even though you don't feel like praying, a lot of times people will find they begin to feel like praying when they're praying. Right? Because the grace rises to meet your action, whereas your lack of faith, your reluctance, is, is met with, um, really it's, it's met with uh, uh, a withdrawal of the divine favor. You know, so rather than getting stuck on that, I'm not really prepared, I don't have a proper frame, uh, maybe worse than that, uh, I have an ill frame. 
for praying. You know, just not in the right mind, I'm not in the right mood. Brown is saying if you make right use of Christ, that will actually uh, become an argument for praying, not for waiting, right? for approaching to God, for, you know, it, and again, how are you going to do it? You're probably going to do it by beginning saying, Lord, I don't want to pray. I don't feel like praying. I don't like praying. I, uh, I don't see the point. <clears throat> whatever you know there's no point and he, he talked about this before there's no point in trying to hide something right uh, complete transparency is the best policy you know, you're being honest with yourself you're being honest with God you know don't try to to pull your punches don't uh, don't try to act as though you're you're not in a particular frame when perhaps you are. You know, I'm not going to pray. Why? I'm angry at God. Okay, so then if you make great use of Christ, your your prayer is going to begin with, Lord, I'm angry. I'm angry. You know I'm angry, and I shouldn't be angry. I know I shouldn't be angry, but I am. You know, I should I should want to pray, but I don't. I should have my heart framed in such a way that I'm going to go about this in an acceptable manner, but I'm not. That's all stuff that he's already talked about, right? You you need to be um, transparent uh, in your in your praying. Don't, don't think that you're fooling God. Don't think that you're going to somehow offend God. Again, making right use of Christ. There's really nothing that you could say in prayer that is going to offend God. Right? But there are things that you might say in prayer to God, and when you hear yourself saying it, you might realize... I shouldn't be thinking that way. I shouldn't. And and then you need to continue saying that. Right? I shouldn't be thinking that. I shouldn't be wanting to do this. Anyway. A fourth thing. 354D. Faith of Christ, mediation, intercession. Should in boldness to come forward in prayer, notwithstanding what? Uh, notwithstanding the dispensations of the Lord speaking out anger and displeasure against us. I want to look at a couple of verses here. That he's given us Psalm 79, 5, Psalm 80, verse 4, and Psalm 85, verse 5. So Psalm 79, 5, Psalm 80, verse 4, and Psalm 85, 5. What was the first one? Psalm 79, 5. Psalm 79, 5, how long, Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? Anger in God, and, and what you're really perceiving, uh, in all likelihood, is uh, well. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, God may still be angry, um, but you, you may stand in that relation. Nonetheless, what Brown is saying is that too should be an encouragement to make right use of Christ, right? because in Christ the anger of God is abated. And we find peace with God. You know, until we find peace with God in Christ, we stand in this relation to God where um, the whole cosmos, 
is uh, angry with us, right? Because God is standing in this adversarial position toward us. And that's only remedied in and through Christ. Again, when people don't perceive that, uh, it's more a function of delusion. You know, when people confuse, say, outward prosperity uh, for the favor of God, it's delusion. Remember, I mean, remember David, what David says in, in the psalm, you know, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, my foot well nigh slipped. And he, he starts thinking to himself, maybe I'm serving you in vain. <clears throat> they seem to be getting all the goodies in life. Everything seems to go well for them, etc., etc. And then he said, I went to the sanctuary by God and, I, and then I saw their end. And then I realized they've been set in a slippery place, right? Uh, you fatten pigs for slaughter. And so, the, in, in the history of the church, we see this. You know, times of great material prosperity in the church is almost uh, exactly the same time as the spiritual prosperity of the church is ebbing. Right. There's just a, a formalism that's coming. And that's been a, it's really a problem. You know, when people complain about the church in this country, um, a lot of it has come about because formalism is set in. The, the churches in this country, um, and I think we can say, they haven't faced real persecution in a long time. Right? They're, in fact, um, I think too often they've confused outward material blessing, which God does promise to give to a people who are who are obedient, right, to nations and kingdoms. But when you're receiving that and you're not obedient, never a good correlation. It's never good in the Bible. You know, the, the horses that the king rides upon, they get fed well too. But the pigs are being fed to be slaughtered. You know, so you've got to ask yourself: Am I, am I, you know, in the royal stable to be to be ridden, or am I, uh, you know, going to be? Am I being fattened for the slaughter? <clears throat> anyway, uh, in Christ, God's anger is pacified. That's his point. So. These all have to do with um, how we should make use of Christ before prayer. All right, next, in 355, we want to look at two ways we might make right use of Christ's name in prayer. So, these two ways, first, uh, 355A, is we should... We, we want to know if we are making right use of the name of Christ with reference to discharging the duty of prayer. <clears throat> and then B, or, or second, uh, with reference to our acceptance in the duty of prayer. So we're going to talk about them uh, both at, right now. Okay, so just get those two points, right? We want to look at the, the reference to the discharging of the duty of prayer, and then second, the reference to our acceptance in the duty of prayer. So in reference to the first, what use must there be? 356. With reference to the performance of the duty... He says, we, we may know that we make use of the name of Christ by this. When there is an eyeing by faith of Christ and the promises of the Spirit for strength and assistance and 
<clears throat> basically putting everything into uh, his hands for uh, for an acceptable work. In other words, when we go about the performance, not with an eye to ourselves, but an eye of faith outside of ourselves on Christ, then, then in discharging that duty of prayer, we are doing the right thing. We're doing what we're supposed to do. <coughs> All right, second, in reference to the second. Our acceptance in the duty of prayer. He says that there will be a confiding, this is 357, there will be a confiding and relying on the sole ground that Christ is the intercessor and that he has to present all of our petitions to the Father and that he has to make all of our petitions acceptable. <clears throat> so again, not just with reference to discharging the duty, but now in our uh, in our anticipation of an acceptance of prayer. We are going to we're going to understand that all of our acceptance is based upon what Jesus has done, gone to the right hand of the, uh, the Father, making intercession, presenting our petitions, um, and in essence, you know, putting the point on our prayers, right? We're, our prayers are not going to God when we pray aright in Christ. Our prayers are not going to God as it were uninterpreted. All that, that would offend, all that would be unacceptable is interpreted out of our prayers. And, and by the way, this is exactly why, and he talked about this some time ago, <clears throat> there are times when we will pray for something and we have in our minds something particular, something peculiar. And the next thing we know, we're getting something very different, perhaps, from, from that for which we were praying. And yet we recognize in that an answer to prayer. Right? And, and not only that, sometimes, you know, it's one of those things where you will, if you really reflect on it, you'll wipe your brow and say, boy, I dodged a big bullet, right? I was, I was praying for something, and if that had happened, that would have been horrible. You know, would have been the outcome would have been disastrous uh, and maybe even ruined my life. On the other hand, you know that didn't that didn't happen. Uh, something else happened, and as a result, uh, I can see not only God's hand in that, but I can see that this was much better. That's one of those cases, and we talked about it, where God actually is taking cognizance of your your true desire but you know what you were praying has been corrected because it's been your prayer has gone up to God and it's gone through that intermediary intercessor Christ right the mediator and he he's corrected your uh, he's corrected the object for which you're asking but he's actually aligned it better with uh, all of your lawful thoughts and desires. I think that's an important thing uh, to keep in mind because, you know, when people only focus on the what happens outwardly, they tend to think that and, and this is really the, the product of a carnal heart, I think. I tend to think that God isn't really listening. God isn't answering. Uh, God doesn't actually have compassion upon them. God is ignoring them. Whatever. There, there's always that 
idea that God is somehow uh, maybe even trying to trip you up. He's not giving He's not giving me what I want. But at some point, you know, when you have read and meditated upon Scripture long enough, uh, hopefully you will come to see if you're a child of God that, in fact, He did give you your heart's desire. It just wasn't what you thought it was when you were asking in that way at that point. But when your heart's desire is set upon Him and His glory, that's when you know you're going to find um, there's going to be a lot more. It'll be first of all, it'll be a lot easier for you to see the answer to prayer because your praying will be more exacting. And that's really, I think, one of the things Brown is trying to encourage you to do is become more exacting in your praying because it is encouraging, right? When you pray for something and you pretty well see it, but. Um, <clears throat> doesn't take as much reflection. Um, nonetheless, you ought to reflect. All right. This ground, of, um, confiding and relying upon Christ and his intercession and so on. This ground will give quiet or comfort, notwithstanding what? And he gives us three things. He says, first of all, notwithstanding uh, that matters we're seeking are great and our unworthiness, on the other hand, seems to be great. <coughs> Why is that? You know, we're seeking great things from God, but look in the mirror. I'm not really great. I'm not doing great things for God. I'm not, uh, I'm not all of these things. How can it be? Why would I have confidence? Again, because your confidence should not be in yourself. Right? So if your ground of acceptance is not in you, but in what Christ has done in his intercession, in his um, presenting of your petition, then you're going to have ground for comfort. So it's not your merit, it's his merit. Right? Second, <clears throat> that there'll be great comfort, great quiet, notwithstanding uh, two, uh, 358b, the many challenges which arise in us to mar our confidence and dash our hopes. And this is going back to one of the things you just talked about in a sense, right? You, <clears throat> um, Whether we're talking about past sin or present sin or present, unsuitable frame, whatever. The, the fact is, there's always something about you, in you, pertaining to you. <clears throat> you. That is simply, if you were to consider simply and absolutely you, you're unacceptable to God. But the point of relying for acceptance of prayer upon Christ, making use of him, is saying, I'm not, I'm not really grounding my comfort that I will get acceptance on anything that pertains to me. I'm going outside of myself. And there there's confidence, there there is stability, there there's that steadfastness. It's everything that we're not. And so this brings us to the third uh, thing. This ground will give quiet or comfort, notwithstanding that our faith begin to fail us and that we, through discouragements, begin to faint. Again, uh, very easy for that to happen, isn't it? 
<coughs> you know, you start to pray, and you are, uh, as they would say, gung-ho. You have a full head of steam. You're all about praying, and you're all about whatever is going on, and then for some reason out of somewhere, your faith just begins to wane. And a paralysis may set in, you know, or, or worse. You might become mute. He's saying, but look, the ground of our acceptance in prayer uh, is not, again, in ourselves. Nor is it in anything contingent in this world. It is Christ and what he's done. That he will present and perfume our prayers. That he uh, will, in fact, provide all of the encouragement, all of the basis or ground of hope and comfort. Okay, so we come now to the third <clears throat> point, 359. What may we know concerning prayer right after prayer? Uh, he says, we should know that Christ is a mediator and intercessor in whom and for whose sake alone. We expect all of our returns and answers. So, we're going to go over uh, five comforts, and that'll bring us to the end of the chapter. There are five comforts that uh, we can gain as a result of this this, um, resting quietly upon Christ. The first comfort offered, 360A, Uh, The first is that notwithstanding Satan in our own consciences, can tell us of many misdemeanors, many failings, abuses, and so on. He says reliance upon Christ as the one in whom we expect our returns and answers is is a comfort even in the face of that. The assaults of Satan, the assaults of our conscience, uh, and yet in the face of that there is this comfort. And and, and then he, he raises a question, it's a why question, right? Why? Why is why, why does he offer this particular comfort? Three sixty B, and that is because it's not on account of any good carriage in us formerly, or even in it on any uh, account of any uh, good improvement of former mercies that we would expect any return. We expect to return to prayer not because of anything we've done, um, good or bad, but simply because of what Christ has done 
and the fact that he is our intercessor for God. Yeah. Uh, I understand that. Um, now he's. I think what he's saying in those cases is he's he's saying, look, uh, and and there's in in just in injustice. Okay, uh, when people persecute you, when you're not doing something wrong, you know, that's what David is saying. Look, I behave myself uprightly. I I don't deserve that from them. What God is doing is something altogether different, but their motives I know are not correct because their motives are are not just. How do I know? Because they're punishing me despite the fact that I've I, I've done what I was supposed to do outwardly. All right, the second comfort offered. <clears throat> Three sixty one A is this this resting in Christ's mediator um, is a comfort, notwithstanding the challenges which come before us uh, from our manifold miscarriages in prayer. And he says that that could be lack of faith. Lack of love, lack of fixedness, lack of liberty, and so on. The reason this is of comfort, 361b, is because as, as he has been saying, and he points out again, it's not on the supposition of our having any of these qualifications or that our prayers would that they would be answered again we're not relying on that right? the whole point here is our hope in gaining return of prayer is not rooted in us but in Christ so again this is a, a tremendous ground for comfort Three sixty-two. A third comfort offer. Here's a third comfort. Then again, comfort based upon the ground that Christ is the mediator and intercessor, and that we expect all answer in and through and on His behalf alone. Notwithstanding that there's little appearance of a good return. For this will bear up the head and give us hope. We put our prayers in Christ's hands. In other words, we're, when we pray, <coughs> um, he's, he's pointing out the difference between praying and putting your hope in Christ and putting your hope in the prayer is in part stands in this you know you might be praying and thinking well that's possible right that that might that might actually happen because you saying no when you when you put up your prayer you're going to put it into Christ's hand you're not even thinking that way you're just putting it out there Right. Again, remember, you should be praying according to his will. And we'll have more stuff that we'll be covering. But the, the, the why here is why, why we can have comfort in placing in Christ's hand is that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Uh, he actually has... Uh, The um, uh, 
the price that was required with the Father. He's purchased everything that we would need. Right? Everything uh, that we could possibly uh, desire in a godly sense. So it's all certain. It's all been purchased. It's all uh, bought and paid for. So the, the certainty is not outside of Christ, but inside of Christ. And that's what he's saying. If, you, if you're putting your certainty outside of that, you're not going to have that comfort. Right? But if, if your certainty is in the mediator and you're looking for the return, not on anything, on account of anything in you or in anything around you, but because of the mediator, that is right. Okay. Fourth, the fourth comfort offered and, and why 363. <clears throat> says by, by placing this uh, confidence in Christ's return of prayer, he says that um, it's comforting despite matters seeming worse after prayer than before. And by the way, this is not an uncommon thing. But if you've prayed much, you probably um, have already noticed this. I don't know if you've if you've uh, given it serious thought or it's happened enough where it's caused other uh, hesitations or problems for you. But very often, you know, when you pray, for example, that you wouldn't be led into temptation, all of a sudden, you find yourself facing stronger, more violent temptation. What's all that? You know, I didn't think I could withstand half of this. And, you know, going from, you know, getting getting firebombed to having, like, nuclear sin bombs dropped on me. But he says... The, and this is the why, 363b. Um, if we lay the whole of the weight, put the whole matter over into the hands of Christ as advocate and intercessor, then this sort of thing is not going to disturb us. Instead of being this devastating blow, like I just prayed and look what's happening, it will be, I just prayed and that's interesting. I've given this over. Because honestly, if you haven't, that's when the, um, these temptations or trials uh, that's really when they're going to be more difficult for you to bear in other words when you when you pray if you don't put it over into Christ's hand for answer a lot of times particularly when you're praying about you know sin and and temptation and that sort of thing, it very often will seem worse because it probably is worse. Because you just prayed, uh, which when you're praying, there's a, a, a pretext that you're turning this over to God. And if you have, then that that assault, remember this is spiritual warfare, right? that assault immediately thereafter is something um, interesting and, and, and uh, instructive in a very different way 
than if you've prayed and you become discouraged and disappointed because, you know, it, it, it's not all going my way now. In fact, it looks worse. All right. 364, what's the fifth comfort offered and why? Here again, the issue is what? That we've, we've placed everything in Christ's hand. We expect to return to prayer because of what he's done, nothing that we've done. And that gives good comfort despite many things that should concur to really to rob us of hope of receiving any good through Christ. The reason is, again, he's a faithful and tender-hearted high priest. He's not going to forget your, our case. Right. And, and if you're really convinced of this, it's not this other none of this stuff is going to sway you. Your problem arises again and again from the fact that you, when you pray, you haven't really offered it up to God. You know, you, when you offer something but take it back, you haven't really offered it, have you? But if we've really offered up our request to God, as our catechism says we're doing in prayer, then we're not retaining any of it. We're, we've turned it over. And we await return uh, in and through Christ, you know, what he's done. And, and on that basis alone, we're, we're uh, going to stand back and, and wait. Okay, that's really the extent of what Brown has to say here in this chapter. Um, in chapter 19, uh, we will be looking next time at encouragements to... And in prayer from Christ's name.